Good evening, everybody. Please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. It's been a different sort of week for New Hope. Our first holy week in this new facility, which we're very grateful, for which we are very grateful. Last Sunday, uh, some of us got to experience the first dry run of uh, the first St. Hilda's service, um, and we were very blessed to be a part of that. And uh, Wednesday, uh, Keith Peters opened up his home, and we read the Gospel of Matthew together, um, the entirety of it. It took about two hours and 20 minutes, about that. Um, and it's incredible what you see and some of the comments that you hear from, um, from different folks, especially the comments from um, some of the edge kids that were there, uh, I'm not supposed to say that, not edge kids, edge students, um, that were there, and um, that what they noticed. And one of the things that we noticed um, as we were reading through it is, wow, Jesus talks about the weeping and gnashing of teeth quite a bit. And wow, this is a darker story than perhaps we've heard in the past, that when you're able to experience the breadth of the gospel in its whole as Matthew presents it um, and get it into that context, it means that much more. And then Thursday, last night, uh, St. Hilda's offered a, a Monday Thursday service, and that was very holy with a, with a time of, of foot washing right here by the uh, Bishop Chilton Knudsen came and, and washed the feet of many of the folks that came to the service. And we got to see what sacrificial love and sacrificial leadership and servant leadership looks like as she bent down on her knees and washed the feet of anyone that came forward. Um, tonight, we come to this solemn occasion. Oh, I forgot, this morning. This morning, we, we did a crosswalk, which is the first time that, that I'd ever been a part of something like that, where we actually took this cross that uh, Tim Fales made for us a number of years ago at New Hope, and this is the cross that was at Stone Chapel with us, um, and we actually walked this cross around the neighborhood, up to the library and around and back, singing these hymns and talking to each other about what it feels like to carry this cross together, none of us carrying it alone, but carrying it together and talking about how this is an exercise in humility and this is an exercise in contemplation of this solemn day. But then we come to tonight. And Paul tells us in Colossians that we are to see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, through empty deceit, through human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. He says, yea, there may be something to philosophy. We're not dogging that necessarily, Aristotle and Plato. We're not necessarily dogging um, these, these wisdoms, supposed wisdom. We're not dogging the, the things that humanity says is a right way to live. However, if we're not living according to Christ, if Christ isn't at the center of it, what good is it? Christ needs to be at the center. Our world is not empty of the philosophy and empty deceit and human traditions which seek 
to supplant the truth of the gospel. In fact, Paul tells us, For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Our Lent series has been called Test, Trust, and Triumph. We've looked at different biblical episodes uh, through the wider lens of the redemptive narrative in a way that considered the idea that these episodes highlighted test, trust, and triumph were in fact pointing towards something else. We talked about that disconnect, like God was working through the life of Israel, but each time we saw that cyclical story of God's people falling short. While, of course, we wrestle with those stories of Abraham, of Moses, of Joshua, and David, we see them do these incredible things, these holy things. We also see that their story, though, it's pointed in the direction of something greater. We saw that the, the test that God put Abraham to, and saw it was pointing towards a greater test, one in which would, uh, God himself would provide the lamb. We saw the trust that was required of Moses to be the hand that delivered his people from the bondage of slavery. And then what comes after Exodus? The giving of the law, which shows us what we're truly in bondage to, sin. The Exodus was this ancient story which points to a coming chapter of greater trust, of ultimate deliverance. And then we read about the triumph of Israel during the conquest of the Holy Land. And then the rest of the Old Testament is filled with stories and poems and prophecies about how Israel struggled to maintain the sort of kingdom that was focused on God. Even after a king is put in place, this man who is a man, supposedly a man after God's own heart, he doesn't really measure up to leading the sort of kingdom that is truly God's own. The sort of kingdom out of which blessings flow. You see, each of these chapters and the many episodes that fill out the Old Testament story, they could be seen as, as just a, just a story about a God who plays with a man's heart, commanding him to sacrifice his own son, or just a story about a people who were delivered from slavery only to see them wandering in the desert for 40 years, or just a story, just another story of ancient warfare that only sees a nation called to be God's chosen people fall again and again and again to weak leaders and idolatry. To read them out of context shows many stories that might seem like foolishness. But that's, that's the philosophy of empty deceit. That's human tradition. We're here tonight to talk about how the crucifixion is not somehow just an example of Christ's martyrdom, Christ's sacrificial service love, but also a victorious triumph. Empty deceit tells us that 
lies. Lies that whisper in your ear that say that you are defined by your past. Lies that tell you that, that you are your sins, that you are your addictions, that you are your divorce or your job termination or your failed business venture. Or let's get real practical. We have some teenagers with us today. And let's say you're a teenager, hypothetical, and you happen, because you're a teenager, you happen to be the sort of teenager that likes to keep your cell phone with you all the time. And let's just say, hypothetically, I know I'm just thinking weird here, that you enjoy chatting with your friends and sharing pictures through social media. Nothing wrong with social media, but one web search, web search revealed that is possibly as 50% of teenagers or higher have either been a victim of cyberbullying or actually been engaged in cyberbullying. Not only that, moms and dads, but a huge portion of cyberbullying victims don't even tell their parents. It could look like stalking or harassment or password stealing or impersonation or just the purpose of degrading another human being and telling them that they matter this much, that they have this much value, or that these humiliating words define you. That sounds like a clear-cut example of empty deceit to me. No. No, Jesus says, this is how much you matter to me. I tell you how much value you have in this world, because according to Christ, he loves you so much that he went to the cross for you. In the eyes of Jesus, in the eyes of Jesus, you're precious. The love of God is what defines you. So we confess our sins and we lay them at the foot of Jesus' cross and then we live a life that is defined by God's love, working to build for his kingdom. Friends, we're here tonight to talk about this monumental event in cosmic history which brought it all together when God himself filled in the gaps of history through his sacrificial love you see what we've tried to show is that the story of Israel was pointed in the direction of Christ Israel's representative Messiah the true king of the Jews who not only died for our sins but triumphed over the powers of death and evil through his sacrificial love Paul continues in Colossians to say that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who, in the head of every, who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism. You were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. When he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands, he set that aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. Now, when you watch a film like the one we watched earlier, 
and your heart is torn by this horrific nature of Christ's crucifixion. You may believe that, rightfully so, that this was sacrifice. The record of your own sins are wiped clean, and you experience new life and new creation through the resurrection, which we know, spoiler alert, is coming. But we are prepared. But are we prepared to amen Paul's use of the word triumph? When the blood was getting into his eyes, and he was so weak in his body that he could barely walk, let alone carry a cross, and the crown of thorns was pressing, pressing into his flesh, and then the nails were driven through his hands and his feet, was, was that a moment of triumph? I love, I love Mike Bird's comments on this passage. He says, let's get Paul right here. Jesus' death is not only a transaction of my sin being placed into Jesus' account. There's much more to it. Jesus lets the powers do their worst to him. He takes the full brunt of sin. He drinks the dredge of judgment. He allows death to hold him in its clutches. Then in the midst of a powerless death emerges a divine saving power to forgive, redeem, and renew. A festering cancer of sin has at last heard news of its cure. In the apex of death, life rises with healing in its wings. Satan's force is spent, and his worst was no match for, the, match for the best of the Son of God. That fatal wound of Jesus deals a fatal wound to death. The powers of this present darkness shiver as the looming tsunami of the kingdom of God draws ever nearer. The despots of the world live in denial as much as they live on borrowed time. This is Paul's atonement theology. This is the victory of God. The past few weeks in the, in the Edge, we've been talking about the Crusades. It's in all the youth manuals, by the way. Make sure you at least spend two weeks in the Crusades every year. We learned that the Pope, the day called the Crusaders to this holy war, to take the holy land that they, when they were called into there, they were to wear the cross on their chest and fight so honorably, according to the Pope, that they that they could earn the right to wear the cross on their back when they returned. What followed was war and turmoil and political confusion, religious confusion, sanctification confusion, and centuries of the most unimaginable short of bloodshed. Women raped, children murdered, civilization destroyed. And we get to the point where we're sitting in class and we're listening to this horrendous story, and then somebody makes a comment, Mr. Joe, this doesn't sound like Christianity. Why are we learning about this? Why should we even bother talking about it? The thing is, I said, well, when I look into a church history textbook, the first couple chapters are most likely going to be about Jesus. And the last couple chapters are most likely going to be about things that I recognize. And what would be in the middle? The Crusades. It is a part of church history. The Inquisition. That's a part of church history. Christians debating the biblical justification of slavery. Part of church history. 
segregated churches, part of church history, denominational divide, part of church history. Again and again and again and again in church history, we see examples of Christians falling for the empty deceit of man's philosophy and not according to the sovereign, sacrificial, life-giving wisdom of Christ. But here's the thing. Christ died for that too. It's a mistake that is all too common. Because I had to admit there, given the right set of circumstances, who knows? Who knows what I could fall for? The Crusades were this awful, and I believe, awful thing, and I believe it's right for us to name them as this awful thing, but I can't for a moment claim that I am somehow above destructive choices and action. No. No, I'm a broken, frail person who is in need of a Savior. See, I was, I was struggling with something in this passage this week regarding the end of it. Verse 14 says that Jesus erased the record that stood against us, the record of our own sins, the record of the things that put separation between us and God. But then in verse 15, he says that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Wait a minute, Paul. One minute you're talking about erasing the records of individuals, and the next sentence you're talking about disarming rulers and authorities. One minute you're talking about the problem of, of my sin, and the next minute you're talking about triumph over corrupt institutions. And then it hit me that they are the same thing. There's no separation between myself and my own sin and the systematic corruption in the institutions. If Christ, uh, for Jesus to be victorious, to be triumphant, he needed to start with those individual hearts. Because as angry as I can get at the destructive choices of mankind, I, I have to start with myself. I have to recognize that my sin has separated me from a holy God, and only by his free, loving grace am I saved. Paul says that Christ saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. See, none of this, none of this is about deserving God's love, deserving Christ to go to the cross. It's about seeing God. It's about God seeing the depths of my soul, seeing the things about me which, which could lead to death and destruction and corruption, and then still going to the cross still looking me in the eye and says, I love you even though I see the deepest, darkest depths of your soul. I love you and you are precious to me. That's how he does it. That's how he triumphs over evil and inaugurates a kingdom of restoration and reconciliation and resurrection by dealing with the sins of humanity. But it begins with you and me. If you're here tonight, if you're here tonight and you've never taken that step, to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, I beg of you, do not leave here without doing business with God. Maybe for you, all of this, it's new. And a place to start is to sit quietly in prayer, as we did a few minutes ago, and ask God if he's really there. Ask him to move. Or maybe this is something that's been working on you for far too long. 
God's been knocking on your door of your heart and you've been trying to ignore it, maybe then tonight, tonight's the night where you say, yes, Lord, I recognize, I confess that I'm a sinner in need of salvation. Come into my life and make me the type of person that you created me to be. You love everything. You gave everything for me, suffering even to death, even death on a cross. And now I give my life to you. Or perhaps you've realized that it's been quite a while since you took personal inventory. Maybe you've been a Christian for years, but it's been a while since you did that business and you started thinking, maybe I need to expel some things from my life. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross was actually a triumphant victory. Do you believe it? The task of the church is to implement the victory of the cross. Are you a part of it? What would it mean for you to put down fear and give it to God? What would it mean for you to put down that addiction and give it to God? What would it mean for you to put down your past and trust in God's future for you. In a moment, we're going to take communion. This ancient memorial that is as old as the church, where we eat this bread, which is Christ's body broken for you, and we drink this wine, which is Christ's blood shed for you. Our communion table at New Hope is open to all those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and we invite you to come forward. If you do not worship Jesus as king, you shouldn't feel obligated to participate. The bread is unleavened, the red is wine, and the white is grape juice. And please take the elements back to your seats where we'll partake together. First, though, stand and join as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. 